So I want to begin by just asking you a simple question. I want to know how many people in here are dog lovers? Are you a dog lover? Raise your hand. So quite a bit. How many, are there cat lovers out here? There's cat, cat lovers. All right, I'm going to convince you that it's great to love dogs. Look at these dogs. Oh, oh. Actually, the Crudos gave me a dog just like that. Your mom gave me one. Oh, he was great. Look at that dog, huh? Rub that dog's ears. Better than a cat that bites you, right? <laughs> and then look at this dog. You can't resist this dog. See? <laughs> you got to be a, a dog lover. But after my wife and I spent a year in Russia, I'm not so sure they're all like this. There are some dogs that are just plain nasty. When we lived in Russia for a year, what Russians... Really, uh, dog owners would often do, they couldn't feed them, so they would just let them go in the wild. And packs of roaming wild dogs started forming where they would sleep under like just dilapidated buildings. They'd eat garbage. They were flea and disease infested. They would nip at you and people would walk by, would just throw stones at them. And they were terrible, terrible dogs. And every time we read about dogs in the Bible, that's actually how the writers in the Bible talk about dogs. Not some cute, cuddly little animal, but a nasty predator. One Bible historian wrote about dogs of the Middle East. They said dogs kept towns clean by eating garbage, dead birds, and unburied corpses. Given that they were viewed as scavengers, filthy, aggressive, and insatiable, Dogs were not allowed to enter houses. It was considered a horrible fate to have one's corpse eaten or one's blood licked by dogs rather than having a proper burial. And that's in reference to Jezebel. If you remember Jezebel's story, she's thrown out, the, out of a window, died, and the dogs licked up her blood and ate her. It's a wonderful story in the Old Testament. I really recommend it. But really, if you would hear the word dog in the ancient Middle East, this is what you would think of. Kind of like the dingoes in Africa that gather and nip and bite and attack, or dogs like this, just nasty. They're not for you. They want to rip you apart. So with this in mind, we're going to read Philippians 3. It's the next section where Paul is going to talk about a group of people in the church, and he's going to call them dogs. They travel in packs. They uh, work together to destroy the work of God in a community, and they still exists. So Paul is going to warn us to not let the dogs in. So the question is, who let the dogs out? And you know what that comes from? Who let the dogs out? Who? 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 I See how contemporary of a pastor I am? <laughs> Anyhow, let's begin in Philippians chapter 3, reading 1 through 11, with the title being, Who Let the Dogs Out? Paul begins by saying further, some Bibles say finally, he's getting to the meat of what he wants to talk about. So further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are of the circumcision... We who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. 
If someone else thinks they have reasons to put their confidence in the flesh, I'm telling you, this Paul saying, I got so much more. I circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecutor of the church. As for righteousness based on law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I, I want to know Christ. Power of his resurrection and the fellowship of participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is, I'd say this is one of those passages that isn't just one of the most important in the New Testament. It's one of the most important in all the Bible. It's a beautiful passage. And my intent is to make it simple. Because some people get confused with what he's talking about. So I'm going to do it in three parts, and I'm going to be a proper pastor with alliteration. First part, part one, warning, W, see? Warning, it's after my last name. Second part, we're going to talk about Paul's witness, his story, how he is not scared of the dogs, and you don't need to be scared of the dogs. Third part, he's going to talk about want, what we all really want. We don't want to be a dog, we want what the dogs are never going to have. And we'll learn all about that. So let's begin in part one. And the part one's about warning. He's going to warn them about the dogs. Look how he begins in verse one of chapter three. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. So that's his constant theme. Find joy in the Lord. Don't get down. Don't be depressed. Don't feel like you've failed. Just rejoice. And then he says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. He's a good teacher. He's going to tell you the same things. Rejoice. And then he's going to tell you, watch out. Watch out for who? The dogs. And he's going to talk about them in verse 2. Watch out for the dogs. He calls them evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. What is he talking about? First of all, at that day and age, there was a group of people called the Judaizers. You can read them in the book of Acts. 2 Corinthians. Galatians is a whole expose on them. But there's three things about them. Number one, they insisted on circumcision as a sign of salvation. They first were Jewish. They came to Christ. But then they wanted the Jewish symbol of circumcision, the mutilation of the flesh, the male part, to prove you're part of the chosen people. And then they insisted, everybody's got to be circumcised to really be Jesus's. They, they said it like this. Yes, we're saved by faith in Jesus. Yes, I agree with that. However, a proof of that is you will then be circumcised. That's proof that you have genuine faith. If you choose not to be circumcised, you're probably not saved. So really, it's not about faith. It's really about outward signs of circumcision. 
That's what's going on. And they would hound people. And they would hound Paul. And that's why he calls them evil. Actually, in Galatians 5.12, he calls them agitators. They stir people up. They get them worried. Am I really saved? Are you circumcised? No. Well, I would doubt your salvation. We are so good at that. Are you baptized? Well, no. I don't know. Did you do some work on Sunday? Yeah. Uh, you have the filling with tongues? Well, I don't know. Maybe you're not saved. So they agitate. And they would, they would hound Paul all over. All over. They want him jailed and killed. They're evil. They're evil. Third thing you can say about them is they are mask wearers. They look good. Usually people who adhere to some outward sign seem so much more serious and engaged. See, you just believe, but man, I go even farther. And they're usually upset. People who are upset at church and have their arms crossed, they just seem so better, don't they? They're just godly. That's the point. They're wearing a mask. It's fake. It's fake. We're going to talk about that. Because honestly, the reason we need to talk about that is there's not many Judaizers around these days. But the dogs that carry the spirit of the Judaizers still exist in every single church. And instead of calling them Judaizers, what they are is they are religious. Like super religious. And it's false religion. And so to kind of tell, are you part of the pack of dogs? I'm going to give you five ways to tell. This isn't to look at other people. This is really for your heart. Because this is how it works in the heart of a dog. Is first of all, you really just focus on the outward things. And you don't care too much about your inward walk. Faith doesn't matter much. What matters is what you do. If you were raised in a Baptist church in the 60s and 70s, you know what I'm talking about. It's really easy to talk about it. Really easy. 60s and 70s, if you went to church, you had to wear a tie. That's why I'm wearing a tie today. Some people are pretty impressed with me today, saying, you look good, pastor. You are really a good pastor, you know, because I got a tie. And then another guy said, you look just like John Wick. Is that a good thing? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But in the 60s and 70s and 50s, men wore ties and suits. Women wore dresses. Men had their hair cut above their ears and above their collars. Women could not wear red lipstick. You don't do that. Not in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. No tattoos. No drums. No rock and roll. Don't be seen at the movies, coming out of a movie or watching a movie, and definitely, definitely do not, Joe, do not dance. I saw you dance. Get out. That's the kind of stuff. That's the kind of stuff. So, just like, just like the Judaizers, yes, you believe in Jesus, but if you believe in Jesus, you must not do that thing. Or you must do that thing. If you don't do that thing, you probably don't believe. So that thing becomes everything. So you could say in the Baptist church, it's that way, but it's also in the higher churches. I grew up in a church where a nun would wear this thing called a habit, like the flying nun. And I remember as a kid going, oh, she must be holy, because she wears that thing every day. 
and she's really not that pretty, and so she must really be holy. I know that sounds bad, but that's how kids thought all the time. Priests would wear those collars, oh, and then they'd talk very piously. And if you talk piously, you must be holy. It's a joke! Like, you've seen it. Guys are down here, and I say this often, but it kind of drives me crazy. I can shake your hand and say, how you doing? I'm Chris, how are you? Doing good. Every time I take a step, something happens. I get a little bit more holy. I get a little bit more holy. Then when I get behind the pulpit, then I start talking like this. And I hip and hop. Ho, ho, that's a spirit. That's a game. It's a show. We are to be human beings before a living God who knows our heart. Not a showman. We're to be the real thing. Dogs aren't. Second thing is dogs care more about lineage than salvation. If I'm raised in the right family or if I do what mom and grandpa and grandma and great grandma say, if I'm from the right church that I'm baptized in, denominational organization, if I'm identified to those groups, I must be part of the chosen. I'm on the right team. That really mattered. And you'll see Paul will talk about it in a second. Third thing, dogs observe dates, days, rituals, seasons. Like those are really important. You do not work on the Sabbath. Even though the Sabbath is Friday at twilight to Saturday at twilight, we've turned it into Sunday, and you can't cut the grass on Sunday because you're breaking the Sabbath. And that really matters. And in some people's hearts, if they cut the lawn on a Sabbath, oh, I remember I grew up in a home where you can't eat meat on Fridays during Lent. And my brother got a quarter pounder with cheese on a Friday. I thought lightning was going to strike him dead. <laughs> Don, get that out of your mouth. I ate a pretzel when I was supposed to be fasting. I remember I put a pretzel in and I'm like, oh no, because a day matters more than reality. You know what I'm talking about. If you don't sing Silent Night on Christmas Eve, it's not a good, it's just a failure. Uh, cutting too close to home, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> Any, <laughs> the next one is keep the letter of the law, ignore the spirit of the law. If I go to church on Sunday with a tie, if I don't work, if I don't eat meat, if I wear an itchy sweater, if I polish my shoes, if I stay out of the movie theater, if I do all of this stuff, then I can be, I don't need love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, or self-control. That doesn't matter, because I did everything else. I don't need to be a Christian. I just do Christianity. And then the final one of the dogs is they, their lips aren't connected to the truth. They will say they believe, but when you really see them, you know they don't. Kids know. Kids know. Mom and dad act differently Sunday at church than they do Tuesday afternoon at 2 o'clock. That's not good. That's not good. These dogs are in every church. They will often seem to be the most holy being a pastor for a long time now at this church, I've learned how to spot the spirit of a dog. It's kind of funny. You'll, you can kind of catch it. Somebody will come into my office, their arms are crossed, their chin up. They'll look down on me and they'll say, Pastor. Like that. Usually lick their lips. Pastor. 
I'm very concerned. And you need to do something about it. <laughs> Why? 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 Who, who are they? They're Pharisees. They're in charge. That's a dog. And I'll tell you what, Paul does not mess around with dogs because they tried to kill him. And so what he does in this next section is he gives witness to saying, oh, those guys think there's something, like you need to listen to them. Let me just tell you, I know way more than any of them do, and I'm not intimidated by them. Because what they do is they're competing with outward, outward acts. And Paul says, oh, you want to compete? You want to play that game? I already won. So if you notice, you go to verse 5, he, actually the middle of verse 4 says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, like they're super religious, were they all that? He goes, I, all right, I'll play the game because I kill them, meaning he's going to call their bluff. And he's talking about the Judaizers, these Jewish guys who are trying to tell everybody they got to be Jewish. And here Paul is saying, okay, you want to know my pedigree? Number one. I was circumcised on the eighth day, meaning when he was an eight-year-old baby, eight-day-old, eight-day-old baby, he was circumcised. He, already, he was circumcised his whole life. And these guys are trying to get adults. He's like, I've already been there. I've done it. I don't need it. Then he says, you know, I'm from, I'm from Israel. I'm in. I'm already in. He goes, not only am I already in, I've been in my whole life. Not only, and then he says, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. If you look at my lineage, we're talking about lineage, you can go all the way back. My bloodline goes all the way back to Benjamin, and Benjamin was where the first king of Israel came from, Saul. And Benjamin also part of Judah's blessing. And I'm in. So you want to talk about blue blood? I got it. And then he goes into I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, means I don't jump into pagan culture. I'm Hebrew all the way. I'm not some half-breed, some game player. I'm all in. Not only am I all in, man, I was a Pharisee. I studied at the top school. I got the diploma, master's, and double doctorate in Judaism. So don't talk to me about what it's about. I know what it's about. And then he says, not only that, but my blood was on the line. I was an activist for the Jewish cause. This guy came around named Jesus, said he's the Messiah. I wanted him dead because he was going against our monotheism. I started killing Christians. What did you do? What did they do? They aren't all in like I am. And then ultimately he said, man, I was perfect too. I was blameless, which means he kept every Sabbath. He went to the synagogue, kept all of the rituals, all the cleanliness laws, everything. So basically he's saying, all right, you want to play this game? I win. Let's stop it. And then he says in verse 7, after playing this game, whatever we're, I realized, whatever were gains for me, really it's worth nothing because after I climbed all of this, I get to the top of the mountain and everybody's underneath me, I still see, I didn't even, I, I still have a million trillion miles to go to get to heaven. It's a joke. Let me put it to you like this. I'll, I'll bring it down. And this is where the Michigan-Ohio State game comes in. Are you ready? I am not going to rip on any Wolverine. I'm not going to rip on the Buckeyes. I want to give you my perspective on what Paul's trying to say with an illustration. 
Everybody comes up because I am from Ohio, and every Ohio State-Michigan game, people are chomping out the bit to get me on Sunday if the Wolverines win, because I'm an Ohio State fan. Right, Mark? Look what he's wearing. Stand up. Stand up. <laughs> I told you. Jerry, what are you wearing? See, see what I'm talking about? And I understand it because I kind of play the game a little bit too. And I've been playing a game my whole life, you guys. I grew up as a little kid. I'm talking like five years old, 10 miles away from the Ohio State Stadium. I could hear the band on Saturday mornings playing Script Ohio, Hang on Sloopy. My front yard had three Buckeye trees. And all you guys are like, what's a Buckeye? It's a nut. Yeah, it's a nut. I don't mind that. And I would collect those, and I became obsessed with the Buckeyes. My sister went to Ohio State, my brother-in-law did. I would VCR every Ohio State game. You guys know what a VCR is? <laughs> and I'd re-watch them. I know all the stats. And I'd come here to Michigan country, and I'm hammered on by all my, my I was a uh, youth pastor, all the students. If you guys know John, I had John Potes in my, if you guys know John Potes, he's like, I'm going to bet you. If Ohio State loses, you have to do the announcements in front of everybody wearing an actual Wolverine, not, a, not an M hat, a Wolverine on your head. I said, all right, and I had to do that. Completely embarrassed, I did announce for John Potts and just eating it up. Then this guy comes around named Brady Hoke, and I didn't say a word. I didn't say a word. I didn't want to make it a big deal. And so I'm just telling you, I've been in this a long time. Paul's saying, I know what you're talking about. Yesterday, yesterday the game was at noon. Did you know I did not even think about the game? Do you want to know why I didn't even think about the game? Because my son was playing his final football game ever. One of the biggest games he ever had. For four years, he's been giving his body tore his ACL, his hamstring, concussions. This is his last game ever against a team that were wreckers. My wife and I drove up to Wisconsin to watch it. And it was a tough game. And I didn't even really even think about the Ohio State Mission game. Do you know why? Because I have no investment in it, really. Like, honestly, I don't know, I don't know the coach he doesn't know me, the coach of Ohio State. You guys who are Michigan fans, you don't know Harbaugh. They don't care about you. They really don't. Did you know that? They really don't. Marvin Harrison Jr. does not know me. They don't. All we do is wear colors and say, see, I'm helping them win by being angry, you know? The truth is, I have a son who's playing in a game, and he's given his life for this team, and then after the game, he's broken, and all I can say is, I love you. I have a relationship with somebody. What Paul is saying is religion is this, playing this game where I have nothing. I'm not accomplishing anything by wearing an outfit, by saying, Jesus, there's nothing. But I do have a person by faith who's the son of God I can have a relationship with, and he's everything. Knowing Jesus is everything compared to playing stupid religious games. You wear a tie, like this, all this is is a piece of cloth. It doesn't mean anything. But man, faith with somebody who's closer to you than a brother, 
who you can talk to in your darkest night, who speaks to you through his word, who gives you his Holy Spirit, that I can find encouragement in darkest days, who's promised me he's going to save me thoroughly. Now that's the real game. And what Paul is saying, all of this other stuff, this religion where I'm just trying to impress you with how good I am, it's vanity. I consider it a loss. Solomon said it like this. You know what? I've tried to, I've tried to accumulate everything, accomplish everything, and I realized, do you know the eye is never tired of seeing or the ear of hearing? Everything's vanity. Human achievement never really satisfies. It just doesn't. I can continue to try to be religious, but the higher I climb, the more I realize I have to go. And then there will be a point where I'm exhausted with trying some people quit the church because they're exhausted. God's never happy with me. Oh, I started to hate church for a while. Because I knew I just, I'm going to do, I'm going to sin again. I can't do it anymore. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about a relationship. We'll talk about that in a second. But human achievement just is dissatisfaction. You've got to keep working, keep working, keep working, keep working, keep working. And then what happens, you start realizing, I'm not getting anywhere, so the only way to feel good about yourself is you compare. Instead of looking up, realizing, I can't be up there, I start looking around going, well, at least I'm not down there. So if I'm above these guys, God's got to love me because I'm just a bit better than everybody else. But it's not about comparison. It's about a person. There's only one person who's great. There's only one person who's perfect. There's only one person that completely pleased the Father. The Son of God. Listen to verse 8. What is more, I consider everything, all that I've done, all that I've achieved, all that I've tried, I can, it's vanity, it's a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's really what I want. I want Him. He's of surpassing worth. He is the pearl of great price. In Christ is everything I've ever dreamed of. Everything. So what Paul is saying in verse 8 is he's saying the prize the story of every person is the end of the road is Jesus. If I, what am I competing with you for? You don't compete. Did you know you don't compete for relationships? It doesn't work like that. Relationships is about love. Love has no competition. People won't love you because you can dress better than somebody else. And if they do, there's something wrong with their love. If God loves me because I'm better a tender or I can speak more piously. I don't want that kind of God. But if God loves me because he made me in his image and he proves it by sending his son to die for me and he forgives me when I sin, I want him. So the prize is Jesus Christ and verse 10 is what you get in Jesus Christ. You get a personal knowing, you get a relationship. I want to know Christ. This is experiential knowing, not intellectual knowledge. This isn't theology. Well, did you know Jesus is both the propitiatory sacrifice and the 
substitutionary atonement. Yeah, that's true. That's not knowing him. Knowing him is somebody who understands me. Verse 10, I want to know him, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And this isn't like, is it, we, what we do a lot of times is we twist phrases and we put different meanings to them, and what we've twisted the phrasing is, this is resurrection life. What is res life? Where you get healed. This isn't talking about that. This is talking about grace. The power of the resurrection is God's gift of grace to take a dead body and let him live again. To take your dead circumstance, your dead situations, your deadness inside and breathe life into it. To give you another chance, hope, and a future. The power of resurrection is taking the dead person, making them alive in every aspect of their being. That's grace. And he has it in abundance. And I can ask for it every day. And when I feel like I'm on the, my tank is empty, I go to Jesus and saying, can you help me just today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the third thing is he's talking about fellowship of his suffering. Suffering in the sense of we suffer because God is working in us the image of Christ. And instead of seeing suffering as a woe is me, we see suffering as a chiseling as actually him working to make me be more like him. That's why Paul wants it. Not because it's fun, not because he's a masochist. Beat me, God. Love it. No, it's because it means that God really loves me. The way a father disciplines his son, God will discipline those he loves. And we should find joy in that. And that's hard James says, count it all joy when you face troubles. Thanks, James. He means it because it's conforming me into his, his image. This is gaining Christ. This is gaining the pearl of great price. How do you acquire Christ? In verse 8, he tells you how you don't and then how you do. Look what he says. In verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss because surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I've lost all things. You do not acquire Christ by achieving. You don't acquire Christ by being better than everybody else. You don't acquire Christ by proving your godliness, wearing a tie. You don't acquire Christ by being better. Paul says, I just, I lose it. When I, when I try to impress God, I actually miss Jesus because I'm so focused on me. There's this whole teaching called perfectionism where I keep looking inside and I, oh, I sinned again, I sinned again. Stop looking at yourself. It's not about you. It's about the goodness of God. He loves you. And that is where the second part of verse 8 and 9 comes in. Respond by faith. Look at verse 9. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, not by being religious. It's not that. But, which is through faith in Christ. And I want to use this term right here. This is a theological term, but I love it. It's called an alien righteousness. When you hear the word alien in our day and age, we hear something that comes from outer space and comes down. Exactly. 
Righteousness that God wants to give you, mean perfection, isn't yours. It comes down from above and you receive it by faith. You don't do it. You receive it. You accept it. I like this little illustration. I read it a while ago. Imagine you're in a concentration camp in Germany. And concentration camps are terrible. You're a slave. You're not given hardly any food. You're diseased by fleas, all that kind of stuff. And the, let's say, I want to get out of this concentration camp. And you see all of these guards around the guns. I'm going to be a better person. That will save me. I'm going to clean up the camp and I'll sweep it. That's not going to save you. You know what saves you is you hear some news, some good news outside of yourself that the Americans landed in Normandy and they're coming to liberate all of the camps. What did you do for that? Somebody did something outside to set me free. It's good news. How do I get set free? I receive them when they come. Something happened outside of me. Somebody died on a cross to set me free. He did it. The news is shouted. Hey, did you guys hear? Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. Yeah, but I've been sweeping up my life around here. See what a good person I am? No, it doesn't work like that. You receive his death, burial, and resurrection as your own by faith. When you do, you're set free. You gain him. He lives in you. It's simple. It's called salvation. And so Paul ends by saying, and you want to know what I really want? It's verse 11. What I really want is verse 11. Verse 11, and so is to somehow attain the resurrection of the dead. What he's basically saying is, I just want to go home. I can't wait to go home. It's not talking about striving to be resurrected. I just can't wait to receive what all of my faith is leading to, to see him face to face. Theologians call this, we are already there. By faith, Christ lives in us. But not yet. When you really see him, when heaven comes and your body is raised from the dead, that's all Paul wants. I just want to get that. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that. And what I would say is truly, he will be the answer to all of your dreams. And, it's, and you don't receive him by being better than anybody. He doesn't care how good you are compared to the guy sitting in the pew. All he wants is you. That's all he wants. That's all he wants. Listen to how the book of Revelation ends. In Revelation 22, 14, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. It's called, that's where we get the word Maranatha. Behold, I'm coming soon. I think he's coming really soon personally. Look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. His reward is salvation. And this salvation is physical redemption. Where you're going to get a new body. You're going to walk the golden streets with him. And you're going to finally be done with sin. My reward is with me. And I'll give to each person what they've done. I'm the alpha and the omega. Means I'm the beginning of the alphabet, the end. I'm the author and the finisher of your faith. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the beginning and the end. Blessed are all those who wash their robes. What does that mean? 
When you believe in Jesus by faith, that alien righteousness becomes yours, and metaphorically, he gives you a robe of righteousness. Spotless. Clean. And when you believe, he sees you forever in that robe. Even if you sin, he still sees you in that robe. So he says, blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. But then listen to what he said. Outside are the dogs. Don't be caught outside. 